Welcome to the Public Rally. In the recent Democratic primary debate between former Vice President Joe Biden and Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, Biden committed to nominating a woman as his running mate if he received the nomination and an African-American woman to the Supreme Court if he's elected. Unlike the vice presidential nominations of former Representative Geraldine Ferraro in 1984 and former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin in 2008, which, which both felt like Hail Marys, Biden's commitment feels more like the recognition of a paradigm shift in American politics. Joining me to discuss the ramification of Biden's commitment, I'm joined once again by Dr. Elaine Kmart. Dr. Kmart is founding director of the Center for Effective Public Management and senior fellow of governance studies at the Brookings Institute located in Washington, D.C. Dr. Elaine Kmart, welcome back to the public morality. Thanks for having me, Byron. Mm. You recently wrote on the Brookings site, uh, uh, quote, Biden's pledge is part of an emerging trend that is reshaping not only the Democratic Party, but the contours of American politics. Could you explain specifically what, when you say that emerging trend, what exactly are you talking about? Well, we've seen this happening for a while now, but never as dramatically as after the Trump inauguration. Uh, women have always had somewhat of a preference for the Democratic Party and men somewhat of a preference for the Republican Party. But it basically has, they've balanced each other out, you know, um, and it's never been much of an issue. Starting in 2017 with that sort of unexpectedly large march on Washington the day after the inauguration, and then throughout the three years of the Trump administration, um, we've seen a couple things happening. Um, women are really voting Democratic in large numbers, and they're not being balanced out by men voting Republican. So it's it's actually an advantage. Um, the second thing is that there are more women in the population than men, and more women are voting, period, than men. In other words, turnout was 55% in the last uh, presidential election of women. So, uh, and then the other thing to, you know, sort of make this clear is that unlike, say, Hispanic communities, which are, which are in certain big states, uh, women are everywhere, right? So they're in every state, regardless of size, electoral college numbers, etc. And that means that a slight change in women's vote can have enormous electoral impacts. You also wrote, uh, beginning with the march uh, on Washington Day after the uh, 2017 inauguration and picking up steam with each passing day, women's opposition to Trump has grown steadily. Why why was that uh, moment, that movement, uh, noteworthy and significant for 2020. You've touched on it some, but could you expand on that also? You mean the March on Washington? Yeah, right right after the right yeah. after inauguration, because that sort of started, in my view, sort of a that sea change that you're talking about. And so when you look at, say, the, the, the special elections that we've had since then, the midterm elections, that was sort of the sea change moment. And I, I would probably throw in Me Too as well, but, but does all that come together? I think it did. And, I mean, the thing that was surprising about the March on Washington 
was that you, it was very much an anti-Trump march. And usually a newly elected American president gets a honeymoon of, you know, months, maybe a year. Um, people tend to come around the president. Um, in this instance, people were very unhappy with his election and, of course, very cognizant of the fact that he didn't, did not get more, uh, popular, more of the popular vote than Hillary Clinton. So I think it was an unusual situation to happen so quickly after a new president was elected and inaugurated. And it showed, showed something, something rumbling out there and something changing. You know, when you talk about the honeymoon period, I, I was thinking about JFK right after the Bay of Pigs, where that was two months in office. He takes responsibility for it, and his approval rating goes up to 80%. So, <laughs> I mean, that, that's quite the contrary to what you're talking about now with, with, with this women's movement and how short that honeymoon period, if there ever was one, available to this person. Yeah, no, Trump never, Trump never had a honeymoon. That's one of the things that's unusual about his presidency. He never had a honeymoon. Uh, nor did he ever pass 50% in approval ratings, and he's now into the final year of his first term. So that is also unusual for presidents. Um, he's, you know, he's been controversial from the beginning. And the third thing I'd say that was unusual is he never attempted to move beyond his base. Most presidents, once in office, look for ways to widen their base, especially if you came in with a very narrow margin or, in Trump's case, with um, a margin in the Electoral College but not in the popular vote. Um, Trump has been truly oblivious, if not actually hostile, to expanding his base. And that is also very unusual for American presidents. Now, with former Vice President stating um, the other evening that he would unequivocally choose a woman, and even uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, who didn't go quite as far as uh, Biden, but said in all likelihood he too would choose a woman, is this move different from your perspective from, say, Geraldine Ferraro uh, being nominated by Walter Mondale in 84 and John McCain nominating Sarah Palin in 2008, let alone Hillary Clinton being the standard bearer for the Democratic Party in 2016? Well, I mean, it's all of a piece. I think the big difference this time is that there are more women who could conceivably step into the presidential role um, than there were in, in previous you know, in previous elections. And that that's, that's good. It means that Biden will have a choice to find somebody who can instantly be president. And remember how important that is, because the, the older you are, the more scrutiny your vice presidential candidate is going to get for obvious and kind of macabre reasons. But, you know, the probability is if you're approaching 80, Something might happen to you while you're in office. So the choice of the vice presidency really matters. Um, just to give you an example here, um, when George Bush, uh, the first Bush, H.W., um, chose Dan Quayle to be his running mate, um, Dan Quayle kind of fell flat on his face. And he never did recover from 
the image of being sort of dim and not quite with it. And, you know, it, for those of us who can remember, you know, he, everybody made fun of him. He, he went to a classroom. He couldn't spell potato. Correctly. I knew you were going there. I knew you were going with yeah, potato. He, <laughs> okay. Well then you can remember it. I was maybe, waiting. Maybe, Here he comes. Here it comes. <laughs> well, maybe some, uh, I, I brought it up just cause I'm not sure many of our young. No, you go right ahead. Um, go right ahead. I'm sorry. I, just, I couldn't resist, but go right ahead. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure many of our younger listeners could remember that, but, but so, and, and Quayle never really recovered from that shaky start. On the other hand, it didn't really matter. George Bush was young. Um, he was not feeble, you know, nothing, never had a heart attack. I mean, so it, it kind of didn't matter. If you then fast forward to, um, to John McCain's choice of Sarah Palin, which initially was thought to be a brilliant choice because she was a very talented talented political performer. Um, the fact of the matter was that once she got into one-on-one interviews with people like Katie Couric, it was clear she didn't know enough. She was not ready to step into the presidency. And she just didn't know. She just did not have a background that you needed to have to take on that responsibility if somebody um, something happened to the president. And I think that that, as Palin's star faded, I think that that hurt um, McCain's overall effort. Now, did I understand, did I read correctly, rather, um, in your piece, that presently the there is a 19-point gap in party identification between women favoring Democrats over Republicans? That's correct. And that's, that's an enormous, enormous gap. Uh, it first played out in, we saw it in, in big numbers in the 2018 midterms where a lot of women voted Democratic and turnout went way up. It went way up, particularly in the suburbs, leading most commentators to think that the reason the Democrats took the House was because of independent and Republican women moving into the into the Democratic uh, Party, or at least for that election. So, yeah, it's a it is a big gap now, and obviously the Biden campaign study politics like the rest of us, and they are seeing that. So, this is I, this is kind of inevitable that there's going to be a woman on the ticket. Now, now, the reason I, I we began this conversation talking with Dr. Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institute, the, the reason we began, I began this conversation with about this sea change. What, what's the genesis of the sea change? I recall back in sixteen um, when I was teaching at Wake Forest at, at, at a graduate school, and I didn't get the sense, especially the the, the young women students in the class were really excited about the prospects of the first female president, the potential of the first female president and secretary, Hillary Clinton. And I and, and I don't know if they thought it was preordained that she was going to win or they just weren't excited. I don't know what it was, but that was all before Me Too. That was before the Women's March you mentioned. That was before the presidency of Donald Trump. And I'm wondering, does, when you put all those things together, 
is it a is it different from when when we won the cusp of having the first female president in 2016? Was it what was last? Is, it, is the feeling different? I'm sorry. Is the feeling even more exciting now of even having a a, a woman as vice president? And and let me add. A, as Biden said he would do if he gets the nomination, a the first African-American woman on the Supreme Court, does that generate a different feeling than even having the first woman president in 2016, given what has transpired since? I think it does, because, I mean, one of the ironies of Hillary Clinton's loss is she didn't lose to a, you know, regular, traditional um, conservative Republican. She lost to a man who is, you know, said things and done things over his life that that make you think he is absolutely a racist and a sexist. Um, I wouldn't, I, you know, usually people like that are also homophobes, but I don't think we've actually seen much of that from um, from President Trump. But you know, the, his attitude towards women is is particularly demeaning starting with the famous tape um, that came out during the campaign, but also just, you know, he, he just is a throwback to an earlier era, which is why I think so many of his staunchest supporters are old men. Now, um, I, I was curious about this. When Elizabeth Warren um, departed from the race, assuring that the next president, regardless of party, was going to be a 70-year-old white man, yeah. <laughs> it, affirm, it affirmed for many sexism still within American politics remains very vibrant. And I wondered how you saw that. And if you did see it as, as indication that, that sexism that people are concerned about, could you walk us through it? Um, well, that's an interesting question because it's it's very difficult to um, prove sexism, mm-hmm. right? Because you, uh, I mean, because most people, I mean, it's, it's very much like racism, right? I mean, it's it's just very difficult to prove it because most people, um, you know, know what it, what the politically correct thing to say is, and even to a pollster, right? They're not going to admit uh, feelings that they think somebody's going to look down on them for. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a funny business trying to prove that Uh, I would add to this question. How about Cory Booker and Kamala Harris, who also the two African-Americans in the race who also got out, got out even before the first contest. Um, it's really hard to say because there's so many other things going on with these candidates. I, I don't know why, um, Amy Globuchar, for instance, didn't take off more than she did. She she sort of took off in New Hampshire, and then it sputtered. Um, and Elizabeth Warren obviously was in a wing of the party where she was she was kind of having to um, she was splitting left wing voters, and she had she had trouble she had trouble too. She couldn't really find her footing. Um, and it's hard to say how much of this is sexism and how much of this is just, you know, other things that surround a candidate. Um, but certainly it was disappointing to a lot of people that we didn't end up with a w- woman, at least in the final two. 
uh, how would you respond if you were advising uh, Vice former Vice President Joe Biden? How would you respond to which I think you and I could agree the the predictable charges that by him announcing he's going to put an African-American woman on the Supreme Court and his running mate is going to be a woman, you know that there's going to be charges of identity politics. How would you how would you advise him to respond to those things? Well, I would respond, frankly, that we've never had an African-American woman on the Supreme Court, and it's about time because um, the court is so critical to the whatever progress African-Americans have made has come through the courts. A great parts of it have. So, so that is, that's long overdue. Um, and I think by putting a woman on the ticket, um, you know, you're not talking about a special interest here. You're talking about 52% of the population and 55% of the vote. So this is, this is the, this has been my sort of pet peeve for a while that analysts keep lumping women in with minority groups, but they're the majority in the population and in the electorate. And so it's, if you look at it that way, um, there, there's no, it's not exactly pandering to a minority to put a woman on the ticket. I'm speaking with Dr. Elaine K. Mark of the Brookings Institute, Senior Fellow of Governance Studies. Um, okay, let's, let's have a little fun now. We, we, we've, got, okay. we've, got, we've gotten serious and gone through misogyny and racism. We're going to have a little fun for the time we have left. All right. You and I are going to pick the vice presidential nominee for Vice President Biden based on certain criteria. Now, before I proceed, I am not suggesting that, that Vice President Biden has the nomination locked up. I mean, certainly the map looks good, but since he was unequivocal – uh, about picking a woman, we're going to uh, sort of give the criteria of who he should pick. We're not going to be specific and say this person, that person, but we're going to let your answers decide who that person looks like. How about that? All righty. All right. So I'm, I'm going to begin by asking you, does the nominee need to have regional importance? In other words, can some can someone put a state in play? Although let me just I'll just add, we haven't seen someone put a state in play, in my view, since Lyndon Johnson was the VP in nineteen sixty, but you have at it. Um, no, it doesn't have to have regional importance. And in fact, um, the days where you put somebody on the ticket for the express purpose of having them carry their state is long gone. Um, and you're right, the last time that really happened was putting Johnson on the Kennedy's ticket, even though the two did not like each other and had a very fraught relationship. Um, they Kennedy did it so he could carry Texas. But that doesn't seem to be as much of in the calculation these days as it used to be in the old days. All right. Second question. Would you advise uh, former Vice President Biden to nominate someone perceived to be to his left politically or to stay the course with someone closer to him politically? Well, I think there what you're going to find is that the mod modern vice presidents have tended to not be ideological balancers. Um, and the reason is that the job has gotten so big that modern presidents, whether it's 
Bill Clinton or George Bush um, or even Donald Trump have used their vice presidents to do very substantive things, you know, carry out very substantive activities. And if the two don't see eye to eye on issues or if they're far apart on ideology, then the partnership just doesn't work. And so I, I think that you will probably see um, a vice president closer to Biden's own views than somebody who is so different that it would be problematic in the day-to-day work of the government. Now, would you advise, uh, and I, I, got, I have a proviso on this, and I'll let you answer, and I'll come back with my proviso. Would you advise President, uh, Vice President Biden to pick someone who will be aggressive on the campaign, on the campaign trail, knowing that predictable pushback we talked about earlier might flare up? Um, yeah, I would get him to pick someone aggressive on the campaign trail. I mean, one of the traditional roles of the VP is to be the attack dog so that the presidential candidate can look a little bit, you know, above the fray. And I I think that I would advise him to get somebody who's who's good at that, who's good at making the case, skewering the opponents, et cetera. Now, um, I mean, and this is based solely on hindsight. It didn't seem like uh, Senator Tim Kaine really fit that mode in 2016. No, I don't think he did. And but remember that this is a little bit like a marriage, right? And you, if the VP and the presidential candidate are too different and don't feel comfortable with each other, then the if they win, the, the next four years are really miserable for everybody involved. Um, and I think that Hillary Clinton just liked and trusted Tim Kaine. And he's Catholic. He's, he's a well-known Catholic. And I think that part of it was hoping that he could bring that demographic more securely into the Democratic Party. But I think you, you can't discount the role just of personal chemistry between people in um, in the president's picking a running mate. Now, now in term now in terms of governing, uh, we've also seen uh, an evolution of, of the role of vice president. I I, I would say starting with um, Al Gore, and it sort of progressed where the role of the vice president is much more than attending funerals and cutting ribbons, and being the deciding vote in in, in the Senate. Um, it used to be what John. What did John Adams say? It was the most insignificant office that uh, ever the man of mine ever contrived of, of something like that. Right. Um, yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, should should there be a specific criteria that Biden should consider in a in 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 a, in a potential running mate in terms of governing? Should there be, say that again? Well, should there be a specific criteria that he should be looking for? Like, for example, oh. um, we're not saying these these people, but if he was going to have, let's say, for example, Elizabeth Warren, I'm, that's not what we're saying, but let's yeah. just say that, like, okay, she would also be ahead of an economic portion of the policy. Should he be looking at things of that nature? Well, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So when Barack Obama chose Joe Biden, he 
he did not choose him for carrying the state. The state of Delaware is very small and pretty reliably democratic. Um, he did not show, choose him for being a, a different ideology. Both of them were pretty much um, center-left Democrats. But the, we were in the middle of, of very, very long wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and that's where Joe Biden had particular expertise. So that, that was clearly, and, and it did work out like this, so clearly Barack Obama chose Biden for that particular expertise. That sometimes happens, um, and but not necessarily. Now, Biden going into, if Biden's the nominee, um, he has a really, really solid foreign policy background, as you can probably tell from the debates, where where sometimes he seems a little hesitant and clumsy in his language. As soon as he starts talking about foreign policy, he's, he's quite elegant and clear and crisp. So he might look for somebody who has maybe, he might look for maybe somebody who's the governor, right? Somebody who has a different um, set of experiences to bring to the table. All right. You touched on this earlier, and I want to talk about age. Because uh -huh. uh, uh, Vice President Biden, uh, former Vice President Biden is 77, and if he were to win, um, his age, I think, becomes uh, increasingly important. We, we're not uh, projecting um, any uh, harm might come to him, but he is 77. Yeah, uh, right. So how, how, how important to have someone who could immediately step in, and what might, and what might immediately stepping in look like? Well, that's, frankly, out of all the criteria, the one that will be most important is whoever he chooses, is that person credible um, as someone who could instantly take over, right? And um, that's, what's, that's what's absolutely key to all of this, is can they step into the job? So you will want someone who has had some foreign policy experience, because after all, all the, with all the crises going on in the world, um, we will that's something you want. You want somebody who has some legislative experience or, and, or some executive experience, um, because you'll, you're always having to deal with Congress, and you'll have to also deal with the, um, you know, with the federal bureaucracy and, and getting things done. So you, you basically want somebody who, when the public looks at them and hears them speak about the issues, says, oh, yes, that person is knowledgeable, they're seasoned, they could do the job if they had to. And I think that's going to be the single biggest, um, or, or I would suggest that be the single biggest criterion when Biden is looking for a uh for a uh, vice presidential nominee. Now, I, I just I just want to posit that I spent all this time coming with this stellar list of questions, and the last one was the only one I needed to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that is that is really the only question. I mean, and and fortunately, this in the it was not always the case, even in you know in certainly in my lifetime, but. Fortunately, these days, there are a lot of women who could fit the criteria 
of being ready to become president. In fact, when the Democratic debates began, people noticed, some to their surprise, that the women on stage seemed to be the best prepared for the office and and the most uh, versatile when it came to discussing the issues, etc. So um, I think we have a we have a decent field for Joe Biden to choose from. But that is by far and away the most important thing for a presidential candidate who is 77 years old. Well, you, you know, you, you mentioned about the women uh, appearing to be more prepared. And I, I was thinking about um, Roger Mudd's famous question to Ted Kennedy, why you want to be president. And it's yeah. that Ted Kennedy sort of fumbled. Given the history of, of, of women in politics, which we've only been voting for about for 100 years now, given that history, women don't have the luxury of being Ted Kennedy and, and, not, and, uh, and, uh, and appearing not prepared to answer a very basic question when it comes to being president. Would that be fair? Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it's like, it's like whenever someone, whether it's a woman or, or a minority, whenever they're the first in whatever field, right, they have to be better prepared than every anyone else. Um, and they often are. I mean, they often are just because, you know, it's not assumed that this is a role that women could do. So I think that, yeah, I think that you'll, you'll we've got a lot of women senators and governors out there, some House members too, and, and I think we'll see uh, who um, Joe Biden picks. Um, on, on, on a slightly different note, um, did you did you happen to catch? Um, well, I'm assuming you did because of the wonderful piece you wrote on the Brookings site. The, the, the debate, the re- recent debate between Biden and Sanders. Say that again. Did I said, I did you to happen catch- to catch the debate, the recent debate? I'm assuming you did. Oh yes, of, yeah. oh, of yeah. course I did. Yes, of uh, course. Well, yeah. <laughs> how did you feel about the lack of audience? Because I, I have a different opinion, but I want to know how you felt about there being no audience. Well, I think it was a little weird initially because, you know, we're kind of accustomed to hearing the audience, even though the audience is not supposed to, you know, react. They, frankly, they're human. They do. So it was a little weird at first. And then I just got used to it. Um, You know, it was clearly a television studio conversation. Um, I don't know. How do you feel about it? You know, uh, I try not to render my opinion, but oftentimes, but I'll make an exception here. I I really liked it because it 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 sort of reminded me of Kennedy Nixon. Um, even though I didn't watch Kennedy yeah. Nixon when it first happened, um, but yeah. it reminded me of Kennedy Nixon in the sense that you know there were the questions you had to answer them. No one had to play to the audience. Um, not having as many people, no one had to fight to be heard. It was, it was so. I, I sort of, I like, I like the format. That's one of the new normals. I, I hope that we keep. I, I, I like yeah. that part of it. Yeah, and it, it's true because if you don't have the audience sort of cueing you on what you should like and what you don't like, I think it's you're more able to to focus on what you think is important. Well, I'll go back. I'll, I'll, I'll go back to 1988. Lloyd Benson, Dan Quayle. You mentioned Dan Quayle. I mean, the only thing we remember about that debate is, Senator, I knew Jack Kennedy. You know, Jack Kennedy was a friend of mine. You're no Jack Kennedy. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, exactly and you know, the right. audience yeah. goes crazy. That line was queued up for that moment to respond to. That line doesn't have the same impact if it's just if it's just two people having a conversation. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I did think that Biden and Bernie got really into it because even the because with only two of them, they could talk about what they wanted to and and even ignore the moderators. So I did think that was useful. Uh, finally, just just on that note about the debate, finally. When you only have two, I mean, I mean, and obviously you can't have, you couldn't do that in the beginning. But when it's down to two, does it allow the voter to sort of step back and assess whether this individual, beyond saying what I want them to say, is this individual um, truly presidential? Do you have? You, does, does having those two allow you to do that as well? Well, I, I, I think it does, just because you get more time on each one. You know what I mean? I, I I think that the basic problem with these debates, using polls to get people into debates, is that you end up with, you know, pizza entrepreneurs and spiritual gurus <laughs> on the stage, you know, and they don't belong there. And under the old system, they would have never been seriously considered. But people who have some name recognition uh, manage to get on the debate stage, and then we have to waste our time listening to somebody who basically has the understanding of government policy that was the understanding you could get from reading the New York Times every day, which is not to be sneezed at, but is not exactly uh, a profoundly deep understanding that you'd want the president to have. Um, and so it was a very, I, I thought that when you have these people on stage, it detracts from the time from everybody else. And it doesn't let you listen to the people who have real depth in government and try to figure out what you think and who you think should be the president. Dr. Lane K. Mark, uh, Brookings Institute, once again, I, I, I want to thank you. I, I have a sneaking suspicion that we will have you back on before there's an election. If there's an election, I'm, I, I'll just throw that provi- <laughs> I'll just throw that little proviso in. <laughs> well, Byron, thank you so much for having me on. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank my guest, Dr. Lane Kmark of the Brookings Institute. The Public Morality welcomes your comments. You can contact me at byron at publicmorality.org. That's byron, B-Y-R-O-N, at publicmorality.org. You can follow me on Facebook as well as Twitter. The archive broadcast can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. Once again, I want to thank Elvin Jenkins and Michael Burns at WJAB in Huntsville, Alabama for allowing us to broadcast the public morality at their studios. The public morality is produced at WSNC on the campus of Winston-Salem State University. And with the uncertainty created by the coronavirus, remember the words of Martin Luther King. We may have all come on different ships, but we're in the same boat now. For all of us at The Public Morality, I'm Byron Williams. Thank you.